Welcome to Conversations with Ben Dixon, where we discuss important topics through a biblical lens, and our hope is to simply encourage you. So thank you for tuning in today. Hey, remember, you can always watch this on our YouTube channel. Just type in Ignite Global Ministries, and there is a playlist that's called Conversations with Ben Dixon. This is episode three of season three, and so you want to follow season three. Please also remember that our audio is on iTunes and Spotify. You can subscribe, and you can leave a review, share this with your friends. And if you forget all that, just go to conversationswithbendixon.com. It's got all the information that you need to know. Again, so glad that you're tuning in today. I've got a special guest with me, my good friend, Pastor Ryan Kim, who's with me today. What's up? And that doesn't mean that Pastor Trevor uh, didn't make the cut uh, and then Ryan's in place. What this means is, is that Trevor moved to Atlanta, so he's not going to be on the podcast unless we have a virtual guest. So Ryan's here with me. Ryan actually is the youth and young adult pastor at our church, which is Northwest Church in Federal Way, Washington. So how do you feel about that? I feel great. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have a, a a mug with my name on it as we speak, and this has nothing to do with <laughs> who, who I am. Um, I just thought I'd point this out, but this is the perks of working here. So, so nobody can forget your name. You just no, got to make sure yeah. that it, the camera can yep. see it at all times. Yep, yep. If you forget his name, look at the look at the mugshot. No pun oh, intended. Gosh. Hey, I know this is great. I'm a father of four puns yes. is Dad what jokes. we do. Well, hey, today's important, uh, something I've wanted to talk about for a while. Actually promised several of you who follow my ministry and our church that this was going to happen. Today's episode is called Abortion and the Culture of of life, want to emphasize the culture of life. And obviously, this is a very important thing for us to discuss right now. We're going to get into exactly why that is, but let me frame up just a few things very quickly so that you know what to expect over the next hour, probably hour and a half. I'm sure it's going to take us a while to uh, hash all of this out together. But the first thing is we want to discuss what abortion is, some statistics a little bit of the history and the potential Supreme Court decision right now that uh, many are talking about in the media to overturn the historic and famous case Roe versus Wade from 1973. We also want to look at what the Bible says concerning abortion, the culture of life. We want to get God's heart on this. That's what we talk about. That's the vantage point and the perspective that we come from. If you're watching or listening today, and that's not where you're coming from, you're probably just going to have disagreements right off the bat. But we want to venture into that nonetheless and let you know up front that's what we're doing. And number three, we want to deal with some of the hard questions that people differ on, including Christians. There are many statements that get made, a lot of comments that happen, but we think a conversation is necessary rather than just a comment. And finally, we want to talk about the role of the church, how we respond uh, based on how we see this and knowing God's heart. So that's really what we're going to do and why we're talking about it. But let me ask you, Ryan, why do you think this is an important conversation to have? Yeah, I mean, I think right before coming in this room, we're in your office and we're talking about how we both feel two things. We feel the weight mm-hmm. and the hope of this conversation. And the weight, because it's so consequential. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's sort of two sides, you know, the consequences of life in the womb and then to women. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just such a consequential conversation. And then you were talking about just the hope of this conversation mm-hmm. too. And like, um, you shared something really good with me about 
where you see this going and how um, how this con- conversation can spark a lot of great you know thoughts and critical thinking and prayer and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, what do you see in terms of just your hope for this conversation? Yeah, I mean, the reason that I wanted to talk about it was because in 10 years, I've probably put three Facebook posts out into the ether world. And every time I do, it seems like I get a lot of amens, and then there's a second group of people that tend to give some type of rebuttal. And 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 uh, it's sad because we're left to sort of these, this online commentary. It just doesn't do it any justice. And I realize that you get caught up in social media posts um, when really what we need to do is kind of sit down and talk. Right. Now, um, I realize that we're not going to solve everybody's problems. It's actually not what we're trying to do. There are a lot of people that we could sit down with. We could sit down with healthcare professionals. We could sit down with policymakers. We could sit down with uh, particularly a lot more women mm-hmm. and talk to them about how they feel about this in mm-hmm. specific. But since it's conversations with Ben Dixon and it's hard to get everybody together all the time, um, I think it's important just to actually have the discussion, regardless of what it might trigger in us, I think the more we talk about it, the more we calm down, the more we look at this um, in an objective way, we do a little bit more research, and there's a hope to me in that, that mm-hmm. we that we can look into this. Mm-hmm. What really is this, and how should we feel about it? Because mm-hmm. our emotional reaction is just not as helpful when we may not know what we need to know. Yeah. Um, so that's what I've done. I've dug into this mm-hmm. and probably need to do a lot more of that. So I want to share mm-hmm. and have you share what it is that we have thus far. It, so It doesn't feel like, it also doesn't feel like there's a lot of clarity in this mm-hmm. conversation either, you know, because there's so much like, it seems like there's so much like, so, so much nuance and so many different sides of both, you know, opinions and things like that. Mm-hmm. But when you really look at the debate and the conversation online, like people, it seems like people are just quoting like little, you know, statistics or whatever mm-hmm. from their side of the camp. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't seem like there's just like robust, right, sort of clarity on 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 this issue, you know. Right. And I think a, a a time like this, having a conversation, is a much better context, you know, to no, do I think, that. I think so, and I hope that it's helpful. We really do. We really hope that it's helpful. I mean, yeah. I I uh, we're gonna give what we have, and mm-hmm. probably need to follow up with all kinds of other things. So uh, please do stick with us as long as you can, because it's going to be a longer conversation uh, today. But we want to start with a bit of an overview of what abortion actually is. Now, I'm going to go to the dictionary first, because that's what I do. The dictionary says this about abortion, if you just look it up. A procedure that removes an embryo or fetus from the uterus in order to end a pregnancy. Um, and it's important when you kind of think about that, that that's the language that people are, are working with. Not everybody agrees that that's all that it is, and I'm, I'm one of those. But here's the deal. We kind of come into this cultural moment, and we ask the question, when did abortion become legal in the United States? Well, you may not know this, but abortion was legal. The first country or nation to ever legalize it was the Soviet Union in 1920. Uh, but in 1973, there was a decision made at the U.S. Supreme Court level, and it ruled that a state law that banned abortion was unconstitutional because there were many states that were that had uh, laws against abortion. You could not have an abortion in these states. It was about half of the country, if not a lot more. Now, that's, that's changed. And so this Supreme Court ruling 
uh, said that on a federal level that abortion is legal in every state of the United States of America. And this decision um, said that a woman's right to privacy extended to the fetus and the unborn child she was carrying. Um, They did this because only a handful of states at that time had abortion legal. And now um, there's, I think I read the other day, 22 states, it might be a few more, but 22 states are um, positioned to have legislation against abortion or highly limited, right? So abortion only up to like five or six weeks. Um, in in the the woman be, a woman being pregnant, and so, anyways, obviously this was not just a debated topic back then. It's highly debated uh, now, and so the cultural news is this: is that there were documents leaked that the Supreme Court, in their closed sessions, have been putting together um, so, uh, some legislation where they would actually revoke Roe versus Wade. This like historic precedent 1973 ruling. Um, If that's the case, which we don't have a full confirmation of, but if that's the case, it would essentially allow the states to be able to determine abortion law for themselves. And so about 22 states would highly limit, if not completely eradicate abortion, probably all the Planned Parenthood clinics in those regions would be done away or extremely limited. But that's sort of what's at stake right now. And, 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 so this is a massive thing. Everybody's talking about it. People are thinking about um, how they should view this. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, even Christian circles, mm-hmm. people are dividing over it. And so it makes you kind of take a step back and say, okay, abortion is being called a, a, a procedure. People differ over this. But what are some of the statistics um, that we think about when we frame up the yeah. this topic? Where do we go from here? Yeah, I'm just going to start sharing a bunch of statistics. And um, I think there's like two sets of statistics. The first one are just kind of objective statistics, mm-hmm. you know, about abortion. But the second part is some statistics that I think will really help us to think critically about this issue. But just some general statistics. So um, there are about 600,000 abortions in the U.S. every single year. There have been about 63 million abortions in the U.S. since 1973. This is a bit mind-blowing, but there's about 73 million abortions every year worldwide. Mm. And so um, that's huge. Yeah. Um, about 6 out of 10 unintended pregnancies result in abortion, and about 3 out of 10 of all abortions result um Pregnancies result in abortion. So in terms of legality by state, most states allow abortion up to viability or about like 24 weeks. So Mm -hmm. that's most states. And there are a few states that allow abortion up to the third trimester and then a few states that allow abortion actually up until birth. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Vermont is one of those states. I think Oregon is one of those Mm -hmm. states as well. Partial birth abortion is what we call it. Yep. And by the way, we'll talk a little bit about this later, but Mm -hmm. a 24-week-year-old baby mm-hmm. um, is, we'll talk about it later, but we'll kind of throw a picture up of a 24-week-old baby. Um, so some statistics about why women have abortions. So about 40% don't feel financially prepared. 36% say it's bad timing or they're not ready. 29% say they need to focus on other children. 20% say it interferes with their education or, or career. And about 19% say it's about mental health. Um, 5% say they were influenced from family or friends. But here's a really interesting statistic is that less than 4% of abortions are 
health-related or caused by rape or sexual violence, mm-hmm. which we would both agree is horrific yeah, that that would even happen to a woman. Mm-hmm. But to think that less than 4% of abortion cases are or are, are directly surround a situation that concerns rape or sexual violence or health related issues is pretty pretty eye opening right um because that is being used to kind of make a blanket statement about all abortions but it's a really small minority okay so this next set of statistics are just some things for us to think about um so a few things that you know I found out in the past couple of weeks that were surprising is that Europe has much stricter abortion laws than the U.S., pretty much without exception. So 47 out of 50 European countries do not allow abortion uh, after 15 weeks. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes we think that the U.S. is like the standard for abortion. But you look at these other countries that are in the West and their abortion laws are much stricter mm-hmm than the United States. Um, Another one, just to help us to think a little bit, is um, 30 U.S. states consider killing a woman with a pregnant child a double homicide. Right. So if you, in 30 U.S. states, if you kill a a pregnant woman and the woman and the child dies, that is considered a double double homicide, meaning we consider that child to be alive. Mm -hmm. Um, Makes you think a little bit. So another one, to help us think, um, almost half of pro-lifers are women. Mm-hmm. So this is not majority men. It's right. pretty much split right down the middle. Um, about half of all U.S. abortions, um, women who have U.S. abortions have had one previously. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting statistic as well. Um, and then this is just this last statistic is over half of abortions are done with pills mm-hmm. versus the surgery. And I think there's this big... Uh, sort of narrative that if we um, make abortion illegal, that women will be having abortions in the back alley and harming themselves or potentially losing their lives. But the statistics say more than half of abortions are done with a pill, Mm -hmm. you know? So these are just some statistics to help us really think through these issues and Mm -hmm. maybe get some objective, you know, information on that will help us sort of process where we are, you know? No, it's, I mean, this is the stuff that's really helpful. Emotional responses don't, you know, they're not always helpful when we're kind of thinking about something like this that mm-hmm. carries pain and shame and difficulty and trauma and um, and truth as mm-hmm. well. And so I think the statistics are extremely helpful. I We were talking about this earlier, and I thought to me, why do people even debate abortion? Because let's just think about this for a second. Um, it's been highly debated to the point where it's gone to every court of the land, and in 1973, it went to the highest court of the land, and on a federal um, level, it was uh, legalized and legislated. And now it's looking at being overturned on a federal level. Mm-hmm. And so you can see the balance of going back and forth, like this has been something that's debated. Right. And so the question really is, why is it still debated, and what is the real issue here? And I believe this. I think the real underlying issue is when is a life— a life. Right. Because we're talking about is abortion moral or first is it legal then is it moral that's the underlining issue. Is it uh evil? Is it is it reproductive rights? Is it women's rights being a subset of human rights? 
that's why some people are visceral in their reaction against anybody that's like pro-life, for example. I'm pro-life. And the idea is that, well, then you're not, you say you're pro-life, but you're not for women's rights. You're not for the reproductive rights of a woman. Well, before we kind of talk about all that, we have to look at it as a moral decision. Mm -hmm. Should this even be a viable option for people to be able to use or choose as a way in which they deal with the fact that they are now pregnant? And to me, we have to take a step back before we talk about abortion and answer the question, when is a life a life? Because that's actually the real debate, and I feel like some of the confusion over this is that we fast-forwarded past that as though that is the precedent. In other words, a life is when I say it's a life. So the argument is, does a woman or a person or a couple or a family really have the right to say when a life is a life? Mm -hmm. This isn't to me, when I say that I'm pro-life, I don't fully represent every perspective that a person who says, I'm pro-life, like whatever they do, whatever they say, I mean, I don't see this as a valid option. I don't personally see this as this wasn't the right path that we took years ago. Now it's precedent, and so we're dealing with all of the outflow of that, of years and years and years, which makes it complicated, which Mm -hmm. makes it painful, Mm -hmm. which makes it emotional. But the issue to me is always this, when is a life alive? Is it conception? Mm -hmm. Is it 10 weeks? Is it 24 weeks? Is it when a child can breathe on its own? They say sentient life. I've I've heard the arguments. Mm -hmm. And so my belief would would be, I I would come down to this place where, I believe a life is uh, is at conception. I don't think most people know at conception that they're pregnant, right? You don't take a pregnancy test the day after that uh, conception happens. And so usually by the time somebody actually learns that they're pregnant, it's four to five weeks in. And I started thinking about that because I was, I was sort of looking at the statistics and the way that we define abortion. We define abortion as a medical procedure. And that's crafted language today. When we call it a medical procedure and we use terms like embryo and fetus, we don't use terms like a baby or a growing child. This this language, um, I'm not suggesting everybody's malicious in this. They certainly have their views. But this language sort of covers over what we're talking about. I'm talking about a baby. I'm talking about a growing child. And so I went I had to do this for myself. I had to go and look at all of the stages of development for a child because, for example, there's a woman in our church right now who's pregnant, and she posts on Instagram uh, at every stage of her pregnancy. She posts like how big the the baby is in her stomach. She posts uh, what is happening in terms of formation, and it's been kind of inspiring. It's actually mm-hmm. contagious. She's so excited that she's pregnant that she's like sharing it all the time. Like, this is week seven, this is mm-hmm. week 10, and here's how big my baby is, right. and here's what's going on. And so it's this exciting thing. And right. on the backdrop of seeing her Instagram posts, I'm recognizing that there's this debate going on mm-hmm. in the world, and she's like bypassed all mm-hmm. that, and she's so excited about yeah. being pregnant. So I thought to myself, I need to actually, for the record, write out what what is happening in the development of a child. So mm-hmm. just real quickly, I won't go through all of it, but yeah. five weeks... This is when a tiny heart starts to form and a a baby's heartbeat actually uh, starts to happen. This Mm -hmm. is five weeks in. This Mm -hmm. is when people usually, four to five weeks is when you usually learn 
that you're pregnant. In fact, I asked I asked people do the statistics, see what is the typical week for a mother to know that she's pregnant. And you'll find a lot of it is four to five weeks. That's mm-hmm. when they actually know. This is already the time when a growing baby, as small as that child is, has a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. At six weeks, a nose, mouth, ears, and brain start to, v- to develop. Seven weeks, hands, feet, arms, legs emerge. You can look this stuff up for yourself. Eight weeks, nerve cells branch out. This, this is when they, they start to feel stuff, guys. Breathing tubes start to extend to the lungs. Babies start to move. Nine weeks, basic anatomy, earlobes, they double in weight. They start, the weight starts to expedite very fast at this point. We just jump to 12 weeks, fingers open mm-hmm. and close, toes can curl, mouth will start making sucking movements. Mm-hmm. And, 14. And just, just right here, I mean, just keep in mind, right here is when Europe basically most says of no Europe more. says no more, yep, right? Right so here. You can, yeah, and 12 weeks is where uh, usually that's that threshold. Um, one in four pregnancies are a miscarriage. 25% right. of women will experience a miscarriage. My wife and I have gone through that. Obviously, it was in her body, but we, we had a miscarriage. Um, but it's a really high rate. So mm-hmm. it, if you cross the 12 weeks, typically that means that you're you're safer than if you don't. So it's usually like the safe zone beyond 12 weeks. So 12 weeks, fingers open and close, toes curl. 14 weeks, brain impulses start firing. They use facial muscles, kidneys work. They suck their thumb. 15 weeks, you can sense light. They determine the sex of the baby. This is when you go in for the ultrasound here at 15 to 16 weeks, and they say, this is a girl, this is a boy. This is where a person actually says, my girl and my boy. They start to name their child. They give them a personal name. Friends, this is the framework here, is that between the 10 weeks and that 20 weeks, or even like 18, that's where typical abortions are being done. And so it's by that time a child is identified in their gender. This is where we give names, all right? So this is like the reality that we have to come back to. 16 weeks, more forming, upright. They're upright. They're developing very fast. I'm just going to skip down to 20, 20 to 24 weeks. They grow to appear like a mini newborn at these stages. So really quick, Josiah, could you just throw up a picture of a baby at 24 weeks just to have a visual of what a baby is like mm-hmm. at 24 weeks? And so that'll be up there for you to mm-hmm. see. We, we just want you to be able to look because a lot of premature babies that, um, that, that are pre-delivered, I mean, way in advance at this point, um, they, hospitals are great at helping preemie babies live at this point. And I actually know of one that was born at 24 weeks, and the child is three years old now, I think, doing awesome. And it's just important to recognize that. In fact, I was uh, I was looking at a post that somebody put up, and it was showing that in the same hospital, a preemie baby at 24 weeks uh, that had been delivered, obviously far outside of the time when it should be, is hooked up to all these uh, machines, and the doctors and the nurses are doing everything they can to save that life uh, and make it make this child as viable outside of the womb now as possible, and and it will, they're very successful at this. And then just down maybe in the hall or on another floor in the same hospital, a 24-week baby could be taken out of the womb and not even looked at as a baby at all. It's an embryo. It's a fetus. Mm-hmm. It's not a child. And if you're in the U.S., again, most states allow abortions right up to right here. Yes. 20, 24 weeks. I mean, this is like the minimum right. that, that they allow. So it's 24 weeks plus, you right. know. 
And we're going back to this because the reality is staggering. 635,000 abortions are done. 60% of them are done in clinics and not in hospitals anymore. That actually used to be a lot different. Um, the statistic I read today was that 90% of them, this was like 20 years ago, used to be done in hospitals, but now 61% are being done in clinics like Planned Parenthood. Right. And these are lobbyists. These are people that are funding our politicians, and they have a very specific reason to do that, not to even make it political. But you just can imagine like when an organization like that, where the majority of abortions are being done, becomes sort of a, po a political lobbyist. I mean, there, obviously, this affects what we're talking about here um, today. Let me finish by saying the development of the child here at 25 to 30 weeks, they have hair they breathe, their, their lungs are strong, their eyesight's developed. Um, one of the things Ryan and I talked about right around even the 20 to 24 weeks, when an abortion is performed, if a person uh, can see it, if they can show the ultrasound to the mother, which they one of the things that pregnancy resource centers try to do is if they can show the ultrasound to the mother who's thinking about an abortion, chances are extremely high that they will not have an abortion because you have to see what's inside of you, yeah. which is why we want you to see the picture. And this to us is compassion. It isn't trying to have a lack of compassion for people that have to make these tough decisions and find them in a place that they never thought they would be. But the reality of it is, is that here we are. That's what we're talking about today. So 30 to 35 weeks, all the way to 40, which is where, of course, you have a newborn where a mother gives birth. You know, the, this whole this whole question of like, when is a life a life? You know, the more that I think about it, the more I feel like a lot of people are a little bit confused about what they believe about mm -hmm. that. You know, like there's, I don't think people who are pro-choice are as settled in what they think. Mm -hmm. You know, as as they say, because even look at our U.S. law, like just just that I mentioned that in 30 states, killing a woman with a pregnant child if they both die is a double double homicide. Mm -hmm. So that's that's confusing. Yeah. Like to say that that's in law, and then say abortion is legal. The other the other thing too is, I was recently watching a a Joe Rogan podcast, but um, you admitted that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but you know, most of you guys know who Joe Rogan is. I don't. His, I didn't endorse his, that at all. <laughs> his podcast. But Joe Rogan is pretty famously pro-choice. Mm -hmm. But he ha he's has this one podcast where he's talking about abortion, and he, he makes this comment. He goes, yeah, I'm pro-choice. And he goes, but it's a, it gets a little weird when mm -hmm. the mom starts to show. And like the, the baby's in, in her stomach, and she has a big belly. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's a little bit weird to think about that. Right. And I went, huh. You know, I think most people would feel the same exact way. Right. The other thing that you brought up too is, so even he's like, I don't, Right, know, there's confusion. He's right. just saying there's confusion around this. And and I think uh, one thing that you brought up is, you know, with miscarriages, right? Like, why do we grieve? We grieve miscarriages if that's not a life. Right. We grieve miscarriages at eight weeks. Right. And a, a baby can have a heartbeat at five to six. And why do we grieve that? Uh, we grieve that because that's a life. And there's a there's a connection with, with a mother and, and even a, a father uh, in a different way. Um, it, it's it's a reality, and and I and I don't want to maybe understate or overstate some of what we're talking about. It's overwhelming. That mm -hmm. that's the thing here. Right. It's like right. there's so much to say. There's so much statistics. There's mm -hmm. so much reality to this. And on my post, I put a post on Facebook, and it was fairly pastoral. It wasn't like this hardcore believe what I do 
or you're going to hell mentality. It was, I felt it was more of an explanation. It was understanding. I was trying to say to anybody that is following me or anyone I would have influence with, I'm trying to say, look, here's my perspective of this. This has been a precedent since 1973 on a federal level. But those of us who disagree with this, and I'm not saying I am shoulder to shoulder with how everybody's rhetoric, but I'm pro-life in, in, in every way based on what I understand Scripture to say in God's heart, not just my opinion, but that's what I believe. And, and I wanted to explain it in a pastoral way. Like, I don't, there's a lot of us that don't lack any compassion for people who are faced with these decisions. In fact, it is our desire to help people mm -hmm. in that regard. That's we right. believe it's the role and the responsibility of the church right. to fill the gap. Right. So, um, which we're going to talk about yeah, at the end of this podcast. But what was shocking to me in my post, I wasn't just looking for amens, and I wasn't trying to be courageous. I was just trying to be explanatory. Being a pastor, I think sometimes it's important for me to make a post, not just because I have this like sense of obligation for the ether world to know what I think about everything. I just have a, a role, and sometimes I think I should say something. And so three posts in 10 years... And the interesting thing was is that anybody that rebuttaled me, out of all the people that sent me a message, made a comment or whatever, there was only one person that I felt like was even reasonable enough to have like a conversation. Everyone else started from the position of, you may not understand, you're wrong, you don't care about other people. So the rebuttal was not necessarily even acknowledging the issue of abortion or the statistics that we just brought up or the formation of a child. We're not even talking about the legitimacy of that, right? When is a life a life? It was, what about everyone else? Pastor Ben, what do you have to say about how minorities are treated? What do you have to say about um, foster kids and adoption and who's going to help all of these people and you're wanting the government to force people. It, it, it was, I just found it interesting that that was the rebuttal. It really wasn't any of this stuff. And I'm like, hey, okay, it seems like you guys have a certain view on this. I get it. But can we stop and really talk about the formation of a child for a second? Sure. You know, having, I mean, we have four kids, like you have a child. Like, can we really talk about this before we jump into like, you don't care about anybody? Right. Because that to me lacks every bit as much compassion as what somebody would claim that I'm espousing in my overall view that would have a difference of opinion. The art of disagreement is something we've clearly lost in our culture today, and I'm just sort of pointing that out. Yeah. Let me go back to this real quickly so that we can jump into a different part of this conversation. I simply want to give an overview while we're talking about this and in the particular part of the conversation where we're saying, here's the formation of a child, and that is, what are these procedures? When we say, what is abortion, right? It's the ending of a pregnancy. It's a procedure that ends a pregnancy. Okay, well, what are those procedures? Because that's a, that's a really important piece of what we're talking about. So there are four procedures specifically. Now, they're also, uh, that does not acknowledge the pills, okay? So there are pills that people take for abortions at the first two stages, uh, you acknowledge that a high percentage of abortions now are being done through pills. I think it's like 52%, yeah. something like that. And depending on how far along a woman is pregnant, she will have to go and get what's called a DNC, after, usually after yeah. taking those pills. So if you're far along in your pregnancy and you take those pills, you still have to go see a medical professional um, to make sure that you don't get infection and that you're healthy, is yeah. essentially. Yeah, and by the way, all of these stats that we're talking about are cited. We have them 
right in front of us yeah. with this with the citations, but they're easily found online. Yeah. So just and we can know. post all those in yep. the comments. These aren't stuff we picked out of the air. No. Um, <laughs> but procedure number one is this: is this is up to seven weeks pregnant. This is called a manual vacuum aspiration. This is a surgical abortion where a thin tube is inserted into the uterus and a large syringe is attached to the tube and the, and the embryo is essentially vacuumed out. That's procedure number one. Procedure number two is between six and 14 weeks, and I don't exactly know how to say this, but it's a suction curatage. curatage. Uh, this is the most common surgical abortion procedure because the baby is larger the doctor must first stretch open the cervix using a metal rod, open the cervix. This is going to be a painful thing, so they have to give local and general anesthesia. Uh, this is typically needed. After the cervix is stretched open, the doctor inserts a hard plastic tube in the uterus and connects this tube to, to a suction, suction machine, and the suction pulls the fetus body apart and out of the uterus. The doctor may also loop uh, use a loop-shaped knife called a curate or a I believe that's how you say it, to scrape the fetus and fetal parts out of the uterus to clean it out. That's essentially the largest uh, used procedure in our country right now. This is the number one. The number two, or uh, the third procedure is called dilation and evacuation, D&E, between 13 and 24 weeks. I don't even like to actually say this on the podcast, to be honest with you. Um but this is during the second trimester. At this point in the pregnancy, the fetus is too large to be broken up by suction alone and will not pass through the tubing. In this procedure, the cervix must be opened wider and is done by inserting numerous thin rods made of seaweed one to two days before the abortion. Once the cervix is stretched open, the doctor pulls out the fetal parts with forceps, usually having to cut them, and the fetus's skull is crushed for easy removal. And a sharp tool called a curate is also used to scrape out all the contents, removing any remaining tissue. This is where uh, these clinics will harvest any organs uh, for other types of uh, usage. Um, typically, that's where they're going to get this from. And the last is procedure four. This is from 24 weeks to full term. This is called a dilation and extraction. This is a partial birth abortion. This is the most debated version of what abortion actually is. And this can take up to three days. The first two days, the cervix is stretched open using thin rods made of seaweed and meds given for the pain. The third day, the doctor uses ultrasound to locate the legs to grasp them with forceps. The doctor delivers the fetus up to the head, then scissors are inserted in the base of the skull to create an opening. A suction catheter is placed into the opening to remove the brain. The skull collapses and the fetus is removed. So I don't really know how you say that any of this and kind of go back to this isn't a life. If you just think about what's happening here, I'm not trying to for shock value say this. I just think it's important to, for the record, state what we're talking about. If I throw up a picture, I could try to get some emotional shock value in this. Um, I do recommend people watch the movie Unplanned. I do recommend a lot of these documentaries that are out there right now that people have changed their perspective, they've changed their view. Um, when women see an ultrasound, they do often change their mind about abortions because they do see their child moving around in the early stages even. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, like 
in preparation for this podcast and just doing a ton of research, I actually watched a video of a an abortion at 24, 24 weeks. And again, the U.S., 24 weeks and, and over is mostly legal in, in most states. And I could, I could barely finish it. And, you know, I know you don't want to do that for shock value, but like if you're on the fence, like watch it. Just it's it's what's it called? I just literally went on Google and typed in 24 week abortion procedure. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's horrific. And one someone I want to bring up, his name is Bernard Nathanson, and he made a 30 minute documentary. It's called The Silent Scream and it's on YouTube. You can you can watch it. And he was a gynecologist and he performed abortions. Um, in the middle of his career, the sonogram was invented around 1970. And he had his first visual of what an abortion was like through the sonogram. Mm -hmm. And this guy full-blown just quit what he was doing and became an advocate um, for the life of children. And he created this documentary because he saw in the sonogram the, the, the baby literally trying to move and pull away mm. from... Um, from the suction cup, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I just think that, uh, you know, I just think that when we're talking about these these kinds of things and these kinds of pr procedures, like when you really do see what is happening and get your eyes on what's going on, um, it, it's it's really difficult to say like that's not that's not a life or mm -hmm. that this isn't a massive moral moral issue. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to not look at it and then right on the flip side make right. a, make a comment have a debate um and even enter into kind of like a space where um you you can you can say things without a visual in your mind while you're saying them and you know just to be very transparent here um before i was a christian i consider that a previous life uh a woman that i was with when I was 18 years old, we, uh, she got pregnant, and uh, through numbers of conversations, w without going into detail, uh, we went in for the procedure to to have an abortion. And at that time in my life, that's kind of what I thought it was. Um, I wasn't really for it, and I wasn't really against it. And I sat there and I listened to it, and we had what we just described. This would have been the first procedure, or um, right around the second, actually, the second procedure. I believe she was uh, eight or nine weeks at that point, something like that. And um, I sat there with her. I saw the look on her face, was confused. We both weren't Christians. So to us, as far as we were concerned, this wasn't sin, this wasn't wrong. We didn't think of this as like murder, as people you know will say it today. We didn't, none, none of that was in our mind. But while we were there, I can just tell you, like it marked both her and and I, um, and it's something that I never really forgot. And personally, for me, I don't even know like what she went through having to be there and experience all of that more firsthand. I was secondhand. I was I was there. I was part of this, but I wasn't her. And I remember her face. She had this look of confusion on her face. I remember the sound of this. Um, I'm not appealing to anybody's emotions here. I'm just saying I've got no stones to throw at people. That's not my point in any of this. 
um, I just can remember it. And so it hasn't made me an activist. I just want to be an advocate for life. Right. That's really the issue in that it was more of confusion that led us into that doctor's right. office at that time. Honestly, right. we didn't go to a Planned Parenthood. We went to a doctor's office and her family was advocating that and we went. We pretty much went along with it. And I would just say this is that I remember after it that we just didn't talk about it again. Her and I never talked about it. And then we broke up. Of course, I became a Christian um, and, and the rest is history, you know. Uh, but my point is, is that it was almost like one of those things we could never discuss. Right. And I discussed it with the Lord because it was part of really what led me to Christ was because I felt sort of vexed. Like, how did I become complicit in this decision and even be okay with encouraging her? Like, I just felt like a horrible person that I was a part of all that. I didn't blame her. I didn't put this on her. I put this on me. Um, but the reality is, is that these procedures that we're talking about, sort of in a technical sense, when you sit there in that office, particularly for a woman, it is horrible for them to go through this. I don't imagine this is really what they want to do. But part of the way I approach this is that we're saying to people, this is a viable way of you ending a pregnancy. It is a yeah. viable form of birth control, and we're not making this a moral issue. Do and you, that's what that's what brought us to that doctor's office right. that day. To to us, it was it was birth control, but when we were there, we realized it was more than that. Do you think that this? I mean, this is just a question I've been wondering. Is like, do you think that the majority of people, whether they say they are, however strongly they say that they are pro-choice over pro-life, mm -hmm. do you think that the majority of people, in an underlying sense, know on some deep level that this is wrong? I have to think that, and the reason I do is because I've been in, involved in apologetics for a long time, and so in my spare time, our family watches a lot of apologetic videos, particularly on college campuses, and abortion comes up almost all the time. Yeah. It's it's a very typical thing for it to come up, and and as it does, it goes from, and I don't mean just like political activist types. I don't mean like the Ben Shapiro's and people like yeah. like the the people that are conservative per se, but I mean like apologists, like people who are speaking from the Bible and defending scripture and saying this is what God God's heart and stuff like that. So when I'm watching those videos, somebody from the college campus will say essentially like they'll bring up the moral argument for abortion or the life of a child, and then the apologist will typically try to lead them towards a culture of life. Like, well, what does God say about life in the womb? And what's interesting is there's always a bit of a confusion when the apologist starts to help people through the actual logical thinking that you must employ when you're talking this thoroughly through. You have to start going, well, I mean, when is a life a life? Um, and then they'll, people will say when, when the person's sentient or whatever. And so then another person might ask the question, okay, so is a person in a coma not, doesn't have value of life? Sure. If a person's hooked up to a, a, a machine, does that mean that it doesn't matter? Um, because a person is, um, because a child is, is, in a, is in the womb and is sharing the resources of the mother, that means that the mother gets to choose what happens yeah. to, to, the, to the baby. So that baby doesn't have a life until it comes outside of the womb and lives on its own. When a person walks right. them through that logical thinking, 
there's always a confusion yeah, like in I, that person. I've seen people say, well, it's it's about viability, right? If the baby's not viable, so at 24 weeks, if they need help right. to, to live, then that's not considered a life. But you're like, man, if a baby, if you've had children, if your baby's born and they're six months old out of the womb, they're not viable by themselves either. Right. You know? They can't get their own food. No. They can't live their own life. They, no. It, 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 yeah, it brings a moral confusion whenever I watch those videos right. because at some point a person, a person has to face a level of confusion. This is why it's easy to comment and not conversate. Right. This is why it's easy to debate and not dialogue because if you bring in the reality of this, like an, uh, an ultrasound, if you bring in the reality of this, like, um, like the formation of a, of a baby, the grief of a miscarriage, the difference between a preemie baby who were trying to save the life and then a 24-week child who were just removing and cutting the body parts up like it's not a child at all. Like right. the confusion and the duplicity around this, just stop the political debate for a second and just really think about this. Like, yeah. how can we have both? You really can't. No, it's it seems to me like, like there's these two value systems, you know? Like on one hand, most people, if they were to watch an abortion and see what's really going on would be like, that's wrong, mm -hmm. right? But then like it's being sort of overshadowed by this greater value of my right. You know, right. this is my... And like, what do you do with that? You know, like what do you do when you say, this is wrong, mm -hmm. but what what what's more important than this being wrong is my right to choose, you right. know? Like, what do you even do with that? So, you know what I mean? Here, here's... Here, Here's what I do. Number one is I I realize like whoever's watching this right now, okay, or listening, because I know. Listen, I know there are some people listening and watching right now, and that you may be thinking, I don't agree with you at all. You know, you're just a pro-lifer, whatever. Right. Okay, I know that's going to happen, but just I'm asking just to listen. I'm just I'm just saying, hey, look, I didn't approach this conversation to try to necessarily convince people. I'm I'm not asking for anything. I'm just simply saying. This isn't about courage to have this conversation. It's about conviction. I've been there, done that. I've got no stones to throw, and I want to help. And that's where we're going to land today. But yeah. what, what do I do with what, you, what you're asking? What do I do with that? My goal is to say, what does God think? Right. Because ultimately, our rights, if we have them, are given to us by God. And I think for me, that's what brings a conviction to me about this to begin with. Before I was a Christian, I saw it as a choice that we got to make, and it was a convenience choice, to be honest, because she was at the beginning of her career, this woman that I was with, and I was going in another direction, and we just made a de decision out of convenience. It was not something we wanted to do together is to have a child. We, we weren't married. We had no intentions of being married. And so for us, it was like, it was an easy no. But we were massaged into that position in many respects because everybody says, this is what you do. Now, again, if that option wasn't there, we would have had the child. As, a, as both as non-Christians, we did not, do not think about the Bible, don't think about what's right or wrong. It wasn't a moral issue. Like, if the option wasn't available, then we would have just had to do what we had to do. And so I'm just saying this. I have to acknowledge that we are highly influenced by a moral governance, somebody is saying this is right or wrong. Somebody. This is not coming from nowhere. If a clinic is making this available, they have determined this is 
um, this is a right, which is a higher moral place to come from. Your right to choose what you want to do with this decision, um, that's, a, that's a moral precedent that they have set, that they have established. And having gone through it in my early, early years prior to being a Christian, it never entered into my mind, uh, you know, kind of like the consequence right. as a result of this. So my goal as a pastor, as a Christian now, is if I can and have any influence in the lives of, uh, of people, is to say, what does the Lord think? And so right. what does the Bible teach concerning life and abortion? That's really the second section right. of this. All right, so before we talk about what the Bible teaches about abortion, um, which I'm excited to get into, I just need to let everyone know, I don't regularly listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. Oh, here we go. Um, I, <laughs> I, uh, I tune in specifically to to for this episode. But You're a gleaner. Not, not saying he's a bad podcaster, not saying any of those things. You're a gleaner is I what do. you I do. I glean from everybody, and, and I think he's wrestling through some stuff. So anyways... What does the Bible teach about abortion? Let's get into it. So to affirm that, I think <laughs> I think a lot of people are cultural curators mm-hmm. and gleaners today. So yeah, obviously you're going to run into the number one podcaster on any social media totally. platform. Shout out Joe Rogan. Yeah. Uh, Hop on our show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 We're praying you for can you. Cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what does the Bible uh, teach? You know, I've, I've got several categories that I think we could, we could go through. Let, let me just throw them at you. Number one, God is the giver of life through the blessing of marriage, family, children, and this means all life is valuable. The second part of this specifically um, deals with what we're talking about today, and that is God values life even in the womb. There's a lot of passages uh, we can just throw out. Number three is we are commanded to value life, which means we're not uh, allowed to take life, uh, depending on how we frame this particular discussion up. Obviously, a lot of Bible verses are employed then in this conversation. And number four is we are called to protect and value human life. This is what we call justice, mm-hmm. biblical justice. That, that's, uh, I've already have a whole podcast on that. And number five, something that is missing in this conversation and the, that is that the Lord is the only one able to help us get back to this place of, of value, of valuing human life from, from the womb to the tomb. Um, and there's a particular passage that we could bring up. But number one, God is the giver of life through the blessing of marriage, family, children, and this is uh, why all human life is to be valued in, in every way possible. We, we, we start conversations like this with Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and this is where God made human beings in his image according to his likeness. And then in mm-hmm. Genesis chapter 2, he brings man and woman together, and he says, what God has joined together as one, let no man separate. And then, of course, he gives them this commission, this, com- this command is to be fruitful and multiply. This is his desire. I've given you um, the ability to reproduce. And this throughout Scripture was seen as a blessing that God called us, man and woman, to come together and given us the blessing to reproduce. So there's passages like Psalm 127, verse 3, that just simply say children are a gift from the Lord. Mm. And I wonder if maybe we're not looking at children as a blessing. If you sort of look at the statistics, 96% are in the convenience category. I'm not Mm -hmm. ready. Um, I'm not married. I don't want to. I'm too young. Mm -hmm. If you look at all of the reasons why 96% of people don't get an or have an abortion Mm -hmm. is that 
is it possible mm-hmm. that we don't see children as a blessing from the Lord? Now, given the context of the Bible, uh, God calls us to marriage mm-hmm. first, man and woman, second, for having children. So obviously, it is a misuse of our sexuality that leads us into these types of places, and I mm-hmm. think that's a really important part of the conversation, which we will kick mm-hmm. for a minute, but that's what leads us there. And so, number one, God is the giver of life. Reproduction is a gift from God. Number mm-hmm. two, God values life even in the womb. Once again, the real debate is about when is a life a life? So the question is, does God value life in the womb, and does that is that implicitly or um, directly referenced in the Bible? And I would argue it is. This is not a figment of my imagination. So there are passages here. One is Psalm 139, verse 13. Uh, the psalmist writes, "'For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb.'" I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Now, just pause right there. As poetic as this sounds, it's the psalmist reflecting on the sovereignty of God, the oversight of God's creative ability and power that God knows. He's omniscient. He has past, present, and perfect knowledge of all things. And the psalmist is standing in awe and wonder of God's sovereign oversight over human life. And that's what makes this really powerful. He says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before they ever came to be. It's just explicit. I mean, this is life in the womb, however you cut it. Number two, Jeremiah 1.5, the prophet was called by God to be a prophet to the nations in his teenage years. Shout out to you teenagers. (laughs) And, And God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. This is Yahweh speaking to young Jeremiah, and he is saying, because Jeremiah was like, I don't want to, and I can't speak. And like many people who are called by God, resisting the call. And God says, wait a minute, I knew you before you were ever born. You must understand this is not a compulsive decision on my part. I am not choosing you because you are something other than everyone else. I have set you apart for this, and now I am actualizing what I have already called you to before you were ever, uh, before you were ever actually born. And that's a fantastic picture of God's view of an individual. Genesis one twenty seven, uh, we've referenced that. Job thirty one fifteen, Psalm twenty two ten. From birth. I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God, the psalmist said. There's just a ton of these types of verses that speak out of this uh, uh, perspective that God has value for human life, even in the womb. Mm-hmm. It, it, they're just there's just tons of them. So I had somebody on my Facebook post recently say, and if you're watching, God bless you. Thank you for tuning in. I did tell people to do that. And this is no slight on you. This is just simply an explanation that I wanted to be able to give as a conver- in part of the conversation. Is uh, she made a comment and she said, um, "The Bible does not directly or explicitly reference abortion." And my comment to that was, "Right, but it explicitly and directly references life." Mm-hmm. Abortion would be the opposite, the antithesis of life. It's taking 
life. If God values life in the womb, then to take life out of the womb would be anti or opposite what the Bible explicitly mm. shows us about God's disposition. Right. So this is why a person like myself is to, is going to say that abortion, the Bible or God's view right. would be against abortion because of the direct references to life. Well, and like just to talk about that for a second, like the whole argument of like, what does the Bible have to say about abortion? Does it say anything at all? But you're saying like the Bible talks a lot about life in the womb, mm-hmm. even before conception that yep. God sees us and knows us. But a few kind of like extra biblical writings is um, some of you guys might know about a document called the Didache, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the earliest basically one of the earliest documents we have of the practices of the early church. Discipleship handbook. Yes, and it was written around the time some of the apostles were still alive. They contributed, we we understand, yeah. And there's there's a sentence in the Didache, this is what it says, you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. That's what the Didache says. Um, Another thing, too, is no Christian author in the 300 years, the first 300 years after Christ, condoned abortion. Mm-hmm. None. Zero. So there's precedent in the Bible, but also in the early church, mm-hmm. that they were pretty for life mm-hmm. inside the womb and outside the womb mm-hmm. as a practice of the early church. Yeah. So if this is the precedent, the value of human life, all human life, the value of life in the womb... Mm-hmm. That means that it begins to enact and um, it begins to enact passages that we would see as taking life right. being evil, taking right. life as evil. So we are commanded to value life to the point where we cannot, we are explicitly mm-hmm. commanded not to take life. So Exodus 20:13, "You shall not murder." That's one of the Ten Commandments. Leviticus 24:17, "Whoever takes a human life shall be put to death. This was written in the law. Listen to this one, Proverbs 6.16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And in case you're not familiar with the scriptural terminology, in the Bible, children are referred to as the innocent ones. For example, when a child dies, if you think about this salvationally, if a child under an age of accountability, there is a debate over, does this child go to heaven? Does, does a child go to heaven? And I would argue, actually, that a, a child, before they can become accountable to a decision for Christ, would be in the presence of God. I would argue that. And the reason I would argue that is because I've done funerals for children that have died, and although I want to be compassionate to the parents and I want to share with them you know, your your child is with God, I, I had to know it was in the Word because I didn't want to say something merely to comfort them. I wanted it to be truthful, and I think that's really the greatest comfort that you can have is what is God's perspective. So I studied this out in the Old Testament, and I found explicit references to innocence, to those that were innocent, and you, I didn't see it maybe said the way that I was looking for, but then all of a sudden as I came upon tons of references about the innocent ones— those that were killed and murdered in wars, and the wars have happened throughout all of our history. This isn't just biblical history, this is history, it's what was going on. And there was a special place in God's law for the protection of, the oversight of, those that were the, called the innocent ones, those were children. 
And it doesn't just seem to imply, it seems to be explicit references to God's care, his specific care for children. Um, and it's again and again in the law. And so I came to this conclusion that there is a place for children who die before the age of accountability, which I don't know if I know exactly what that age right. is, that they are with the very the Lord. young children, very young, babies yeah, babies up to toddlers, a certain point, yeah, yeah and, and God knows the age, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, when when you just sort of think of, of, about that, if that you know, having said that, taking a life out of, out of the womb, it, it would be the shedding of innocent blood, innocent. See, because you don't, we don't often associate the word innocent. But innocent blood and the innocent ones are always a reference, are a lot of times a reference in Scripture to mm. children. Mm. So that's why I bring that up. Isaiah 5.20, and this is a really important verse, Isaiah is saying, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is where there's a shifting of values, where there's a covering over of what is right and righteous according to God's Word and His ways, and now we are saying, this is right and this is wrong. And so even though God sees it differently, we persist in our own way. And so this is what we're talking about. Like, if God values human life in the womb, then we are commanded not to take life. That's mm-hmm. that's a very the- theological way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Number four, we're called to protect and value human life. There's a lot of passages that talk about justice to protect life. And so if anybody wants to know, let's say a person says, I'm not for abortion, but I'm pro-choice. We'll talk about that. You have to understand, people that consider themselves pro-life, the reason that they do is because they read they read the Scriptures and they apply justice passages. We speak up for those that don't speak up for themselves, because the culture has said this isn't a moral issue. Right. If the Scriptures say it's a moral issue, then we speak on it, and not just against people, but for the unborn. So this is where this becomes, a, the moral dilemma is this— is that I don't see this as a right, just a just a human right or female reproductive rights, because at some point we have to acknowledge that a woman, who's the one who has to primarily go through this, and, th- and that being hard, and I acknowledge that, they're choosing to end the life or save the life or keep the life of the child that is in their womb. And as a moral issue, I'm saying that I don't think anybody should have the right to say this isn't a life and then end the life. I'm saying the life is a life. Sure. That's that's the argument. And so I believe people have free will. I don't agree with a lot of people's decisions, but this is where it crosses free will. It's no longer a person making a choice for themselves. They're choosing for the life in their uh, in their body. Right. And that's why it's not just your body anymore. Right. When we when a person chooses to have sex, and again, four percent of those people don't, and so we're we're going to kick that and uh, to to the next part of the conversation. And acknowledge that's a really serious, that's really difficult right. when a person is assaulted sexually. Right. But the ninety six percent that made a responsible choice to have sex, and whatever context that that was, then you knew that it was a possibility to to have a child, to be pregnant. We all know this, and so. Um, it is it is now beyond free will when conception has happened. That's wh- what people are arguing for in that pro-life stance. Right. So this idea of protecting human life is an issue of justice because uh, the, the morale of it has been changed in the culture that we're living in. And that's what makes it very difficult. 
obviously. Right. Hey, don't you believe in people having the right to choose free will? I do. The reason this is different yes. is because you're you're choosing for another life. And I and I actually wrestled through that myself, you know? Like, can I be pro-life and pro-choice? Mm-hmm. Um, and the the deeper I got into the logic of that, the more I was like, no, I can't, because this is not like legalizing marijuana. Mm-hmm. This is not like an issue like that mm-hmm. where there isn't such consequence, you know? Mm-hmm. This is to me, this was like, well, are my personal rights more important than the life of a child? If I believe that this child is a life, mm-hmm. is that more important? Right. And to me, it's like, if you really go down that road, you, you're like, no. Mm-hmm. So, so it really depends on like how much, you, how pro-life are you? You know, mm-hmm. like I think there's like, I'm pro-life isn't like, I don't, you know, and then there's like, no, really think about this. Mm-hmm. Like, how much do you believe that this is a life? Right. And how does that stock stack up to the value system of, you well, know. Let's just jump into the hard questions because yep. that is the first sure. question. Can you be against abortion and still pro-choice? Because in the rebuttals that I've yeah. gotten, this is what I, question. I've yeah. heard this a number of times. So people have said this to me. They say, I'm not, a, I'm not for abortion for myself. Right. But I'm not. I don't believe that we should force people to have children. That is an interesting statement to me, and, and it's it actually becoming a little bit more concrete today, uh, and, and further nuanced. I, Ten years ago, I never heard anybody say it that way. Right. That's new. That, right. that, that the idea is is not new, but this is like kind of developed. To you're forcing. You want to force people to have children. No, I, I <laughs> believe me, I don't. Right, like right, no. Right. Um. In fact, I would advocate. Uh, you know, again, there's that four percent we'll talk about, but for the ninety six percent, I would I would advocate that if people are going to make decisions, hey, listen, I'm a Christian. Do I believe in abstinence before marriage? Of course. Um, do I believe? Do I want to encourage people to not have sex before marriage? I do. But do I know I live in a world where people are doing that anyways? I do. And so, okay, I I think that people should be responsible before they have to make decisions mm-hmm. like that. And so, um, can you be against abortion? and still pro-choice, why or why not? What is the underlying debate? We're going back to, I, I'm saying no, I don't think you can be. I think it, it it's subjective truth in that point. It's not objective. It's not logical if we're going to say, I'm not for it for me, but I don't want to tell other people what to do. I think a lot of times we do that because we don't want, uh, we've been convinced that we're trying to control people. No, I don't think we're trying to control people. We're just trying to say, is this a moral issue? If this right. is a moral issue, is it right or wrong? Right. And you can't go, you can't wash your hands of this. No. You it, do have to decide. And it's a really slippery slope because if, you, if, if you're if you pro-life, then you believe that the, the child's a life and taking that life is wrong, right? right. So then if you're pro-choice, I mean, you just got to ask yourself the question, like, is murder wrong? Right. I mean, like, is, can you be, should you be punished for murder? Like. Right. If your answer is yes on a government level, then you gotta like look at the two and go, okay, that's a really slippery slope there. It is, you know, it's a very slippery slope. Yeah, I respect the wrestle. I, I get I do. it. No, I, I do get, too. Not, I have I'm the not, wrestle. The so. idea is that like, you know, I want to have this conversation because I don't. I'm not here to punch people and say I'm right, you're wrong. I understand people have to wrestle through this. I'm just trying to answer the question. Like, I think that if you're really gonna think through and pray through this. Um, particularly if you're a Christian and you're watching this or you're listening and you're wrestling through this, we, you, you have to determine, you cannot wash your hands of the decision. 
when is a life a life? Number one, you can't do that. You, you can't wash your hands of what the Bible says. Like, what does God think? Mm-hmm. If God says specific things in the Bible, then those things are not just my truth. Those things are the truth. There are a lot of things in life where I might have a preference or an opinion. You might have a preference or opinion. People disagree all the time. But those would be neutral issues or general where the Scripture wouldn't speak directly to it. Believers, Christians that have told me they're they're not for abortion, but they're pro-choice, they're looking at it through the lens of free will, but they're missing the important part of this is that it becomes not a free will issue when it actually is a life, because a, a life is making a choice for a life, and you're called not to right. take it. So that's why you have to make a decision where you stand on those things. And so I would fundamentally disagree with anybody that would say, I'm against abortion, but I'm pro-choice. Would you, can I ask you a question? Do it. And, yep, yep. So what about... <laughs> Um, so here's the here's the question that 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 I think we should talk about is, you know, in the case of rape and sexual mm-hmm. violence or legitimate health issues or the mother's life in danger, mm-hmm. you know, um, is there concession in in scripture, um, you know, for those kinds of situations? Yeah, I don't I don't know that I could say yes that there is. So so that would be. That would that would be a very that's a very difficult question to me. So here here's kind of where I'm at on that. N- number one is I've talked to a lot of Christians about this, and I think people are divided over that specific question. Right. That that's for sure. Number one. Number two is that I'm not for abortion no matter what. Right. You know that's just where I'm at. Right. However, I do think this needs to be highly debated. I, right. I think that question needs to be thought through, prayed through, specifically studied, researched. Um, and 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 thoroughly vetted. So right. I think I think for me, if a Christian is struggling with that specifically, I can totally get that. Yeah. Um, and that's where I'm coming from on that. It's easy to say um, in all circumstances. And I have to admit, I'm there. Like I don't think that abortion is a legitimate um, a birth control. I really don't. We're and talking about right now. We're talking about rape, sexual violence. Correct. Like, okay. and what I mean yeah. is, is controlling that birth. I right, mean, like, right. so I don't. It sounds like a lack of compassion to just be one sided in this, um, but I'm I'm not currently of of the mind where I can just go. Yeah, I I think that in that we need to make concessions. I I would back off a little bit from from my strong yes, and I would say, I think we need to really seriously look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, Because that's very highly individualistic, complex issue. So the 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 the, maybe a little bit even more than that is here. Here's the other one: is if someone's life is in danger, if the mother's life is in danger. See, right now you have to choose between life. You don't. There is no. There is no convenience in this. It's life or life. So to me, I think if I'm going to say I'm definitely for uh, a person making a choice, as hard of a choice as that's going to be. I'm talking like a horrific choice, a horrible choice, something you're going to live with for the rest of your life, but you're going to live the rest of your life. It is in that instance that that individual making that choice, having to do that, I would say I can understand that, number one. Number two, I don't know that I can understand that. I mean, I can understand that why they would make that decision, but I don't know like what that would feel like or be like. I mean, that would be a, a, a hor- horrific situation to be in. So I don't want to say it um, nonchalantly mm-hmm. or or act like it isn't as as difficult as it is. But that yeah. 
that's a place where I personally have in my mind gone, okay, and and it's a small percentage of people. When I look at the statistics, yeah. there is a percentage of people that do have to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. So yeah. it's the other, the, the rape and the molestation, all that. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I need to be kind of a little bit more like, I got to think and pray. And, and you know, I've tended to be more on the side where I'm like, I don't, I don't think that making a decision for an abortion in that instance would be the best decision. I think it right. would be better if uh, that child was adopted or whatever. Um, and I can think of scenarios in scripture where that actually did happen. Those would be highly controversial as well, and I don't know if they're worth bringing up because yeah, some people totally. would disagree with me right. as to whether or not it was rape, when in actuality yeah. I think it was. So I, I you know, don't want to go into that. Yeah, I, I was reading some like Jewish literature, like from you know, kind of like early church stuff, where where there was a concession for abortion if the mom's life was in danger. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get to the point, like like. Traditionally, I think in Jewish culture, abortion was only allowed. I think Catholics the, believe the same thing. Yeah, if the mother's yeah. life was in danger. So, you know, there's that too. Yeah, I think yeah. Catholic teaching is the same thing. Yeah. You know, if you're Catholic, correct me if I'm wrong. So what about, um, so if Roe versus Wade is overturned mm-hmm. and states get to decide and mm-hmm. and we'll be pretty much split right down the middle, you know, in 22 states, abortion will probably become illegal. Yep. And, the, and, you know, a lot of the argument is like, well, what will happen to women, right, in those states? And and um, how should we see this and, and the consequences to women and, and things like that? And so I think sort of the, the, the side of compassion towards women, but also we were talking about sexual responsibility and things like that. So mm-hmm. what is your response to if it is overturned, what now for people living in those states? Yeah, I mean, I don't exactly know on a, political legislative level what exactly will happen in the 22 states i think right. there is some still some concession for abortions up to five to six weeks even in some of those i think it's just highly yeah. limited in and if of mom's them. life in, is in danger in danger like yeah so i don't i don't really know what's going to happen um i do i've got a ton of people throwing stats at me and studies that sure. essentially like i mean people believe this they say if that happens women are going to die that's because they're going to get these abortions performed in some back alley or something. I, I don't agree with those studies at all. I read every study that was sent to me, and the presupposition of every study, it goes back really far. Some of them, right. those studies go back really far. Some of them don't go back really far. There was a Harvard one that was sent to me, and I looked at it, but it has a presupposition. that There's no real data that you can prove this, per se. The only, the only thing that people can look at in current day is to say Texas has a very restrictive law that they just put into place. And so the abortions obviously have gone far down, but people are, they've doubled in states next to them. Mm-hmm. So people are saying it's inconveniencing the women and now they're going out of state, you know, to do all that. Well, here, here's the problem that I think that isn't going to get pop, popularly discussed. Number one, removing the option uh, is not, does not necessarily mean that women are going to die. That's an assumption. Yeah. That's, that's the first thing, is, is that could it be true? It could be true. But because we have precedent and there has been a constant debate for as long as it's been precedent, um, does not, first of all, it's not a proof uh, as to us not, shouldn't, we shouldn't do this because people are going to die. If, if it's a debate and it's overturned, and it's voted on, it means that there is a significant contingent of, contingency of people that are saying this shouldn't be an option. 
when you resend the option, you automatically have to go to the source of this. And the first source is sexual responsibility. And that's where pregnancy resource centers, and if Planned Parenthood really is about reproductive rights, I don't think that it's far-fetched to imagine that people can get condoms and birth control. I just I feel like this conversation gets pushed into people are going to die, which is the highest level of emotional response you can possibly give. If this happens, Pastor Ben, and you're saying, like, you know, with your lack of compassion, this is kind of how it comes to me, with your lack of compassion and your profound ignorance, you do not care that women are going to die. I'm just like, wait a minute. We're rescinding a precedent that's been there for a long time. There is going to be a correction. In that correction, I don't think it's fair to jump to the assumption that people are just going to straight up die. Uh, so that sounds to me like a very very difficult jump. Yeah, that's I think that's that's really extreme too. I was again in preparation for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I was listening to uh, Bill Mayer on his show, who's a comedian who you also don't listen who to I also regularly. Don't li- listen to, but Bill Mayer, <laughs> oh but but no, listen, but but Bill Mayer is like he's traditionally right, like politically left and things like that. And you know that whole, the statistic about most abortions being done by the pill and not surgery is came out of his mouth and he says in his own show who he is not you know he doesn't i wouldn't say he aligns with being pro-life and things like that he says he does not think this that roe versus wade being overturned is going to be as big of an impact or as consequential to the lives of women as people think it is i agree he said that i i i I know it i know it's controversial to say i agree with that but I do think that there's a correction that happens. And, and one of the things that I hope happens is a, is a new level of sexual responsibility. Because the fact is, is if a person's going to have unprotected sex or just decide to make decisions like this and whatever the context might be, you know, the possibility of you getting pregnant is there. And I, I, I guess my question is, are we really saying that people can't get protection I mean, that's how it feels to me. It almost feels like you're talking about all these underserved and underprivileged people that don't know how to get a condom. I, I'm just, I, I know it sounds terrible, but it just seems like, well, how far do we want to take this? Because I do think that on one hand, in the correction, there will be a lot of confusion because people have said, this is right, this is good, this is fine, this is normal. And so when somebody says, no, it's not, and it's legislated now. No, it's not. And now you have to choose something different. Well, I think in the in the choice of something different, I don't lack compassion that even where I disagree with people in their sexual stewardship and the way I disagree with people in the way that they're going to go about what they do in their life, I think we need to pivot and we do need to help pregnancy resource centers and we do need to help with education and we do need to do more of that. Um, that's the part that we play as a society to help our young people right. specifically, because it's mostly young people that we're talking about that are yeah. doing these things. And I that's where I think that matters. You know, right. of course I don't lack compassion on that. I'm not a politician. I'm not a person in legislation. I just am a person that votes. I'm a pastor, so I'm gonna go with God's word. Yeah. And God's word teaches a very clear sexual ethic. Yeah. So that's what I teach and yeah. and it's what I'm for. Yeah. So what you're saying is that the, the the part that's missing in that whole conversation of what happens if Roe Wade is overturned is that personal responsibility piece. Like we can do a better job of sexually edu- educating people sexually, advocating for spe- sexual responsibility. You know, as Christians speaking to an 
a non-Christian culture, mm-hmm. we can't expect that everybody is going to live in abstinence or our right. same values. But we can reasonably we can reasonably advocate for responsibility. Like if you're going to have sex, like use birth control or use a condom. Well, because even or, when I know, say this, like I, I realize that some the the hard part about even a pastor talking about this is this, okay? Because even in sex education, do I agree with our state sure. and what they're trying right. to teach our kids? Of course I don't. I, I don't agree with it at all. I teach a biblical sexual ethic. Right. So the fact is, is that no matter what I say or how I say this, I'm going to disagree with the sexual education, the sexual stewardship, and the consequential decisions of abortion, no matter what. So I have to just let it all out and say, that's where I'm coming from. If I vote, I'm going to vote on that type of stuff um, as, I, as I do. If I speak, I'm going to speak on that type of stuff. When I venture into a conversation with a non-Christian, I'm trying to find some common ground as to what we can really do together. And that's a difficult mm-hmm. thing, we have to mm-hmm. sort of admit. But yeah. I'm going to side... You know, there, and that's that's yeah. how I'm responsible because I'm thinking about what does the Word of God say, right? So, so leading into kind of our last section about how should we respond as the church and as Christians in both compassion and truth and love and care. Um, just a segue question. I always like a good segue, you know, into the next section. But you know, there, I write a segue. <laughs> Dude, that, that that's a separate conversation. They like rebranded Segway and they're like making go-karts now. Anyways, it's pretty cool. I so, don't have one. Oh, I had a good Segway. Now it just got run. All right. Back to the Segway. Got it. Um, <laughs> as we start to go into the final section about how we should respond as the church, one of the big questions is, well, abortion is no longer an option, right? And, and this affects mostly women who, right, are not financially ready, right, minority populations, single moms, or, or, or women who maybe their partners have left them and things like that. So um, going into sort of the response of the church, how should Christians respond to this? Like if we're really pro-life, you know, mm-hmm. you and I have talked a lot about how sometimes we get passionate about an issue and all we do is hop on the internet and speak our opinion and preach to people without actually doing something in our personal lives. Mm-hmm. And you've done a lot in your personal life. We do a lot as a church. Um, but how should we respond as the church with our own lives, you know, mm-hmm. um, in compassion and in truth? Yeah. What is your What are your thoughts well, on that? Well, the Bible's clear. God commands us to care for the suffering and the struggling everywhere in the Bible. I mean, it's like if you're a Christian and you just want to make a statement and not live a certain way, you, you really, I mean... You can't get out of this. So we have to, and are even commanded, as far as I'm concerned, to care. Um, I, I believe that we need to build uh, ministry connections, bridges to helping the orphan and the widow and the single parent, foster care, adoption services. This is uh, a mandate, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I, I think there's prevention and um, and then there's rescue. So we need to be involved in all of the ab- above. We are as a church, which I, which I think, again, when you have the debate rather than the discussion, sometimes the talking point from the other side is, what about people that are living? And my answer to that is, I'm so glad you mentioned that because my experience is 
that the church is actually the ones who are in the uh, fi- filling the gap. For example, if you look at like just one issue alone, like like refugee placement, the government gives a lot of their money to Christian organizations to do refugee placement. We talk about immigration reform and law and all of that. Who is actually doing the placement? Well, in our area, we have a congregation yeah. member. He's the executive director of Seattle mm-hmm. World Relief. They place more refugees in Washington state than anybody. The government grants them money because an organization has to work with the government because of immigration law. You can't just fly a, a refugee over who's seeking asylum. You have to go through the government. So sometimes people say, well, you shouldn't go through the government with that, but you actually have to with immigration law. So my point is, is that when you think about life, people that are seeking asylum, people that are under duress, who do people think is doing that? That work is being done by Christians. Seattle World Relief is being funded by the church. It's ten to $15,000 to support a year, to support an actual refugee. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. You, you, you know, so you don't even just write a check. To get involved, it's costly. People have to make real—Christians have to make real decisions— not just to make comments, but to say, how do I get involved? So there's a lot of things that people can do. N- number one, right away, we can we can give to pregnancy resource centers. Um, those would be CareNet, Pregnancy Resource Center. We have several of them. One's in Everett. There's several others. CareNet's a large organization. The second is uh, post-maternity care, New Beginnings. There's a lot of ministries. Yeah. New because, Beginnings is incredible. Yep, they're in Puyallup. You can give towards them. You can sign up to volunteer. You can serve. You can serve um, with organizations and ministries with single parents. Single parents need help. They need wraparound services. How do we care for them? We started a ministry in our church called Hope for Families. It's just getting off the ground. I don't want to oversell it, but I do want to say that the vision would be to develop maybe 50 teams. We call them care communities. These teams would be about 10 people, six to 10 people that can come around a a family that's stuck or struggling or suffering and finding themselves in one of these categories where they just need help, you know? And so instead of one family doing it all themselves, we develop six people around that particular person. And we just started this, so it isn't like we have an incredible amount of success. It's that we have some, and we're seeing that this is the need for the future to wrap around that family for a Mm -hmm. period of time in their hour of need, and that we can walk alongside them. That means provisionally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and walk with them to provide whatever we can. Mm -hmm. That's that's something that we're doing. Um, The other part is fostering. A lot of Christians get involved in foster care. Getting Mm -hmm. licensed is hard. Bridget and I have attempted uh, getting licensed in the foster care uh, world. It's tough. It's hard work. So there's a lot of things we can do. Number one is we can provide respite care for those that are fostering. We need to do that. Number two is we need to help assist people in getting involved in foster care Mm -hmm. and adoption. We can fund people that want to take children, want to adopt. It's 30 grand sometimes, $40,000. So one of the things that I've tried to do with my wife is help fund people that are getting... Um, I spoke at this one church one time. I'm not trying to lose my reward for it. You asked me a question. I spoke at this one church <laughs> one time, and I, this guy was getting... Uh, the, uh, they weren't able to have a child. And so after many years of trying, they um, they decided to adopt. And so 
they ended up adopting a child that was uh, being given up to adoption right after birth. You know, in this scenario that we're actually talking about today, when it comes to abortion and somebody taking their child to full term because they've chosen not to abort, and they're literally handing that child over within a week um, to their new family. And this person that I knew was doing that. So I was speaking at this church, and I, I took an offering, and I said, every dollar that's given, every any honorarium, any book I sell, anything is given to this particular family. So everybody gave like four times as much, you know? It yeah. wasn't a gimmick. It was like, yeah. give whatever you give me, whatever you pay me, yeah. whatever you buy, all of that money is going to... Yeah. I, I was able to, like a small church, I was able to give several thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, your money's were. Put your money where your mouth is. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. It, just a funny story. I'm just talking yeah. about like that particular person, their family did exactly what we're talking about. They adopted yeah. a child right out of that scenario. And we can fund that because right. sometimes people don't adopt because they right. don't have thirty to $50,000, you know? Right. It's very expensive. So, so an important point, I think like one thing that, you know, I've been thinking about, but I hear you saying too is, there's a right way and a wrong way to respond to this issue in this mm-hmm. crisis. The wrong way, we all know the wrong way, right? Rail on people and get angry and don't really just do, debate. Re, just, yeah, just straight out debate. That's just it. don't you're, do anything. You're wrong. About I'm it right. Lives. But like pregnancy resource centers were created as a response to Planned Parenthood to mm-hmm. care for mo- moms who wanted to keep their Outside children. Outside of abortion, yeah. And you're like, right. that's the right way to respond. That's right. New Beginnings has had, I think. 500 something something five like to, five to six hundred post-maternity yeah uh women who have stayed in their facility yes. for 12 plus months yes. yeah and so new think beans, about think that's 40 years that's yeah. 40 years of care and 600 women how this, many people have paid that price these that's are the incredible. same people same this couple's run, ran this for all 40 years mm-hmm. um and this is a, a home for single mothers, and they come in, they stay with them for one or two years, they disciple them, they help them get a job, help them get back on their feet, mm-hmm. take care of their children that they decide to keep. Yeah, five to 600 uh, moms have gone through New mm-hmm. Beginnings. Mm-hmm. Um, I met a, a, a lady there who was born at New Beginnings and now is on staff at New Beginnings, mm-hmm. which is incredible work. And I look at that and go, that's the right way to respond, funding. Giving our money to 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 families who want to adopt, considering yeah. foster care, that's the right way to respond. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, so all of this, I, I think I have one last question for yeah. you. The church needs to rally. That's what we need to. Yes. We need to rally behind life. Yes, rally 100%. behind life and support women and children and come alongside in compassion and really do something with their lives. But one, one, I think one, maybe last two questions for you. But I think this is an important question. What would you say? to a woman or a couple who had an abortion. Yeah, the compassion for those that have experienced... Yeah, and Jesus' redemptive yep. work, and you've experienced that in your life, yep. but what would you say to... Let's say someone's watching and, and they've gone yeah. through this. My, my answer to that, in n- number one, is how, how do we go about that? In the church, we need to teach the forgiveness of God. Yeah, We need to teach the love of God. And we don't gloss over what we've done. That, that's part of it, is that the grace and the love of Jesus is so powerful in contrast to the things that we have done. That's what makes it so compelling to me, is that bad news and then good news. Grace is so amazing because of how much I need it. And so a lot of times when we can face what we've done and, and just see it for what it is, I encourage people, like, look, when you, when you see this, instead of just feeling guilty, instead of just feeling shame, realize 
that Jesus paid for this, and you can give it to him. You can, there's nothing we can do with this. I, I, having gone through this and considering it uh, a sin, not only a sin of abortion, but the things that I did up to that point around that issue, it, it was a package deal, you know? When I gave that to the Lord, he took it, and I believe the Lord spoke to my heart at one point, and, and I can't say he said to me, but there was a, a thought as I prayed, that came to me, and I want to share this with someone else because this is what freed me, was what the Bible teaches about God's forgiveness, but that sense that the Lord gave me through His Word and by His Spirit that I don't want you to forget this. But what He was really saying was, it's not that I don't. I want you to remember the abortion, it's that I want you to remember the grace that I have for you. That's really what it was. It wasn't about forgetting or not forgetting what I'd done. It was just about seeing God's grace as greater. And that's what I see. And I believe that anybody who's struggling with guilt or shame or condemnation, we come to Christ. We give Him what we've done. We ask for His forgiveness, and He fully forgives, and He fully cleanses, and He fully adopts us into the Beloved, and He lavishes on us what we don't deserve, what we can't earn, and that guilt comes off, that shame gets broken, and our future becomes bright. It doesn't mean we forget the things that we've done, but those things become a testimony to what Jesus has done. And so that's what I say to anybody that is facing the pain of the past, is to say, look, Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner, and all you got to do is come to Him. It's so simple. Come to Christ lay it at his feet and keep it at his feet. Jesus forgives. Mm-hmm. He cleanses us from unrighteousness. And so I think the church needs to seed that into all that we say and do. Yeah. That is Great. where we're coming from. Great. We need to be a pe- we are a people of life. Jesus gave his life so that we could have life. Now we go and help everyone else mm-hmm. to know the same thing mm-hmm. and experience his li- his love personally, mm-hmm. his life personally so then we mm-hmm. can go and tell others. Yeah. And we do that practically. Mm-hmm. We give we pray right. and we serve. Yeah, I have one more thought, and I'll let you yeah. close. Um, I heard this long podcast, man. Yeah, long podcast. Oh my but, gosh, um, I heard this phrase online. I think it's Dave Lomas from Reality Church, but he said that we are redemptive participants. Amen. And I love that phrase. Like yep. Jesus is redeeming people, and we right. get to participate right. in that work in the world. You know, whether you've done this or haven't, or, or wrestling. You know, we're redemptive participants, and I love that. Uh, I love the word redemption. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of times we use it, people don't know what it means. I always say it this way, God redeems, meaning that he makes He makes wrong things right. right. He can make wrong things right. right. Um, that's what a redeemer does. Right. They make wrong things right. We are redeemers. We look at difficult um, and and depressing and tough situations, and we roll our sleeves up. That's what the church is supposed to do. So for any of us listening today, watching conversations with Ben Dixon, and we're talking about, we're thinking through the issue of abortion, but specifically pointing to the culture of life, hey, let's do this. Let's roll our sleeves up, and let's get involved in places and spaces where people need us, they need help, not because um, they're just damaged goods and we're the haves and they're the have-nots, mm-hmm. but so that we can pull each other up right. to know God personally, to serve Him effectively, and to love each other. Let's love people in, into the kingdom. Yeah, we mm-hmm. see this as a moral issue. Yeah, this is a very serious issue, 100% true. But I believe we can make a point without making an enemy, and I think mm-hmm. that the art 
of discussing these types of things and lowering this sort of visceral response um, and trying to see God's heart, I really think that can go a long way, and we do not have to compromise the truth to do that. That's the belief that causes us to want to talk about this here today. So, Ryan, thank you for joining me. Yeah. And uh, maybe you'll come back. Who knows? Trevor's gone. Trevor can't move Trevor's back. Trevor's gone. <laughs> can't Ryan. move back from Atlanta. Trevor's gone. Ryan's no, in. I, I enjoy being here. So. Uh, but thank you for tuning in. And listen, I'm sure we didn't discuss everything no, uh, yeah. in the way we wanted to. <laughs> We're probably going to feel uh, kind of like we should have done that differently. But but uh, more to come. Keep tuning in. Share this with others. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want us to talk about. Love you. And see you next time. God bless you. Peace.